Good afternoon, and welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host, and uh, along here with Eric Crema, we are here to bring you an hour of live radio. Eric, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Paul. Yep, live. I love it. I, I was really happy when you said, hey, let's go live again this week. Um, we've got a, we got a great show, first of all. Lots, lots we're going to be talking about. Yeah, so uh, let's just get right to it. Um, you're going to be talking today about metaverse. Yeah, so this is something that just sort of personally interested me, metaverse. You're starting to hear it more and more, and uh, I thought to myself, you know, I want to start learning about this. So I'm, <laughs> believe me, I am not an expert, but uh, hopefully I can shed a little bit of light on it. I'd love to just chat with you about some of the things I've found. Uh, and really what it does for me is it just, kind of blows my mind as to the opportunity and what the future might hold. Uh, so we'll chat about that, uh, what, about about the halftime mark of the show, I would say? Yeah, that about, sounds about really you? good. I, I see that you've got two wonderful interviews coming up. Yes, uh, the first up will be John Scholes, and he is the uh, president of the Downtown Seattle Association. And uh, first of all, the Downtown Seattle Association, I would just say you read their explanation who they are and what they do basically they are the biggest cheerleaders for a healthy downtown seattle whether okay. that's a uh, business uh whether that's uh visitors or whether that's residents so you got the downtown core it was founded in 1958 and uh john i talked to him about 18 months ago mm. and just asked about what was going on downtown and as looking back to 18 months ago it was pretty bleak Yes. I mean, it was empty, and there was a lot of boarded-up windows, so I wanted to catch up with him now to see how he felt downtown looked now and projecting into the future. So quite interesting interview. I will say it was much more upbeat than it was <laughs> 18 months ago, but there's still a ways to go. And very timely, a very timely uh, interview to have. I love yes. the fact you're having him back. Right, and yeah, check back with some people after mm -hmm. a while. That's right. And, uh, of course, we got Pike Place Markets really going quite well now, very busy, and the cruise ships are coming in. So that's all having an effect on downtown Seattle. Um, I'm also going to be uh, visiting with a Lauren Simons, and she's the CEO of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Washington. There was an article in the Seattle Times about two weeks ago, and it caught my eye because basically she was saying that gun violence is being attributed to mental health conditions or lack of. And she basically was not happy about how people are just knee-jerking that this is a mental health issue. We hear it all the time. And she made some very good points. And whether she made this point or not, I, I think she did. But, you know, she says it's only a mental health issue. Again, why aren't other countries going through what we're going through, if that's what it is. A lot of everybody has mental health issues in whatever country you live in. Yes. But we're the only country, literally the only country, that has these mass shootings almost on a weekly basis than other countries. And I, this is an interview I already did, and uh, I think you will find it very interesting. I love that we're you know touching on all aspects of an issue over time. Uh, this isn't something you hear on other radio shows or television shows, this take that you just said. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear this interview. Good. Glad to hear it because I felt the same way. I just grabbed the uh, phone and called the uh, organization and said, I got to talk to her. And she, we had a That's very nice. interesting conversation. Well, and we're also going to do Voices of History again, our feature. We're going to cover 
June 13th to the 18th, and we're going to go from the year 1922, 100 years ago, to 2022. We're going to have about five or six uh, features on what happened then in history. We move on then to the one-hit wonder, and um, this came from a soundtrack from a movie starring Burt Reynolds and John Voight. And you already know who it I is. I think I know this song. You yes. can't give that out. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, that's going to be at the last part of the show. And uh, so I will give a hint, though. Okay, go it's ahead. It's one of those songs that as soon as it gets in your head, it's in your head. It's going to stay there maybe for life. Right. And people will like <laughs> us for that or they'll hate us. One of the two. Stay who tuned. Knows? Find yes. out. And um, the other thing, Eric, we're going to be uh, doing the... Tacoma Rainiers complimentary box seats uh, for an upcoming game. If you would call into the Voices of Experience hotline and let us know what you think about this show. What do you like about it? What would you like us to do in the future? We're really trying to delve into what the listener wants to hear. That's why we're here, essentially. Uh, I think we hit the nail on several things that we do, but... We can always do better, and, and we, that's we what we're looking great, forward to do. Great message from a caller last week. Yes, his name was Dave T. I won't give his last name out, but yes, he suggested that he had some really good ideas for the show, mm-hmm. and uh, he expressed those. He liked, told me the features that he enjoyed, mm-hmm. and it was that's so very helpful. I want to hear more of that. If you have an idea, we'd really appreciate it. The number to call is 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. And we're going to have a drawing from the people who call in. No matter if you say you love the show, you want changes, or are you giving up on the show, you'll still be in the drawing. <laughs> I I suppose so, <laughs> yeah, but sure maybe don't get out of hand. The rules say we have to. Yes, the rules say we have to. Okay, we'll go by the rules. But uh, what you will get are um, two. If you win. If you win, that's right. If you win, you will get two box seats uh, to a Tacoma Rainier's baseball game. These seats are right behind home plate. You'll get a complimentary buffet dinner, and you will get a complimentary parking and beverages. And uh, you'll also get to meet one of the greatest ambassadors to baseball, Chester. Believe me, you will interact with him. So that will be a lot of fun. So that number to call is 425-653-1166. Again, let us know what you like about the show and any changes you'd like to see made. And we all will be listening. And we will, for sure. And Dave, uh, honestly, uh, you and I talked about Dave's comments at length the next day. Yeah, and they were very thoughtful. He yes, really, very really thoughtful. went to a lot of Appreciate trouble. So, Dave, thank you. So um, let's get on with the show. Let's and uh, we'll go with John Scholes coming up next. And again, he's the president of the Downtown Seattle Association. Where would you love to live? Have you explored today's market? When I spoke with Heather Ramos, she instantly put me at ease. I'm Coach Debbie from Story U, and I recommend Heather to first-time buyers or dream home shoppers and everyone in between. Let Heather's experience lead you to a perfect location and style and all within your budget. Contact Heather Ramos at Keller Williams. That's Heather Ramos at KW.com.
John Scholes is president and CEO of the Downtown Seattle Association. The Downtown Seattle Association was founded in 1958. He was recognized as one of Seattle's most influential people in Seattle Magazine in 1921. John attended the University of Texas in Austin before graduating from the University of Washington. He lives in downtown Seattle with his wife and 12-year-old twins. So when we talked last, things were pretty bleak downtown. I went back to your website and looked at the mission of the Downtown Seattle Association, and it says to create a healthy, vibrant downtown. How are we doing now as opposed to, let's say, 12, 14 months ago? I'd say we're in much better shape, uh, even than three months ago. Uh, just the level of activity in downtown, particularly leisure, travel, visitors from around the region, and then the return of conventions. In addition to some return of office workers, although we're not where we would like to be with the number of folks showing up to their offices Monday through Friday, but overall foot traffic is about 70% of what a normal week in 2019 would look like, and uh, more than 75% of the businesses and the arts and cultural attractions that were here prior to the pandemic you know, have their doors open today. So that's a really good story. And then the other notable piece is the return of residents. We lost several thousand apartment households in 2020. We've seen them plus thousands of others come back and, uh, and, and move in. And we've got more people living downtown today than ever before. Yeah, I find that incredible uh, that so many people with you know, the homelessness situation and, and all the, the, the crime and, and that was in the news all the time that this influx of people coming back to downtown is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think, you know, residents, but also investors and folks, you know, placing capital for new buildings and projects are able to look past this sort of near term and immediate kind of turbulence and series of challenges, because I think they see the real strong fundamentals that we have in our downtown. We've always been, you know, a place with this incredible natural beauty. You've got incredible sports, entertainment, and arts and culture in downtown. And we've had more of that come as we've emerged uh, from the pandemic with the Kraken and Climate Pledge, et cetera. You know, they look at this massive investment we're making to remake our waterfront and all that's going to mean for folks that are going to be able to take your kids down to all these play areas and go to concerts on the waterfront, to rollerblade and bike and walk this gorgeous park in our city. I was talking to Stu Elway last week, and he's a pollster. He's been doing that for a mm-hmm. very long time. And he told me something that surprised me. He said that while we still have a lot of issues here, that in terms of the tech industry, when people are asked where is the number one place they want to go to, it's Seattle. Yeah, largely because uh, we're the number one place that young college-educated want to come you know, for a variety of reasons. And tech follows talent. We're benefiting from that. Yeah, and I also looked at uh, downtown Seattle in some articles I've read recently that there's the feeling that it won't get to the level it was before or maybe the projections of having employees returning to downtown Seattle. So there's some effort underway to try to maybe attract more tourists to fill that void or visitors or something like that. Am I anywhere close to accurate on that? Well, we've seen a much faster and stronger recovery in you know leisure travel and daily visitors and then convention business than we have with the return to work and in some ways i I think that's not all that surprising and i think there's a number of issues 
left to sort of work out between, you know, workers and employers about what does it mean to, on the other side of this pandemic, how are we going to work? What do we expect of you? And, you know, each organization and company that has been working fully remote for the last two years is sort of facing those questions and issues to sort through. Our task ahead in ensuring downtowns, you know, full of lots of office workers is, you know, make it a great place for that people want to be and make it a great place to do business so that we can, the companies that are here can grow. And so the, the pie gets bigger and, and we can attract new companies that aren't here today but that want to be here. You know, we get to a point where a majority of workers are back in the office majority of the week. It's not going to go back to exactly how it was, but very few people say they want to continue working fully remote. You know, there's some people that do and there's some companies that have made those decisions, but it's really on the margins. Most folks uh, see themselves working back in the office again. What is this city not doing that you think they could be doing to expedite the return to uh, health and vibrant downtown Seattle? Well, we know that the number one condition to the decision of employers to bring folks back is they want they've wanted to see action by the city to ensure downtown safe and to address the crisis of homelessness that the pandemic really worsened in downtown. We we didn't used to have major tent encampments in downtown prior to the pandemic. And through much of the pandemic, we had major tent encampments, blocking sidewalks, occupying parks. And then there was violence and, and crime that started to take root in those settings and those locations. You know, today we have very few tents in downtown. We're in a much different spot than we were even three months ago. You know, three months ago, there were 20 tents on the corner of 4th and Pike in downtown Seattle. I mean, kind of our 50-yard line, our first in Maine there. And that situation is not present uh, today. And uh, you can count, I think, on two hands, maybe the number of tents within the greater downtown, when at one point during the pandemic, we had close to 200. Um, So I, I think the actions we've seen by city leaders, you know, our mayor, our new city attorney, our new at-large city council member are the actions that are important to more folks showing up to work every day and uh, and coming in. I think the area where we're we're uh, lagging a bit is is around the transit system and specifically, you know, the the, the stations. The is the bus safe and clean or the train safe and clean? If if those aren't, you know, that's the first experience for a lot of office workers is their commute in. And they deserve and expect, you know, a, a clean and safe and delightful experience on transit. And it's so important to getting people in and out of downtown, particularly those people coming to work. And and that's where we need more action. But on the issues of safety downtown, on police presence, on stepping up to address the crisis of homelessness and bringing more people inside and addressing tent encampments that are blocking sidewalks, we've We've actually made a fair amount of progress there over the last three months. Now, I wouldn't declare victory, but we're finally headed in the right direction with more resources coming specifically around how we address the people that are on the streets uh, living unsheltered uh, through a new plan that's being funded both through private dollars and public dollars to really bring to scale a, a massive outreach effort and then deploying a lot of emergency, temporary, and permanent supportive housing to folks that are on the street downtown. One of the things that really disheartened me through this whole thing is the graffiti that was allowed to flourish during this pandemic. And it really uh, hit, I believe, a crisis 
moment for the city and and still there it's just so again disheartening to look at this beautiful city and just the thing that yeah. i was really skeptical about and i still am some is the graffiti day uh trying to clean it up or whatever a couple of weeks ago and four thousand seattle citizens showed up to participate there and i think that's good news that it, it's the seattle spirit why i love this city that happened but i don't think it's the job of volunteers to do that so much. And my concern is not the concerted effort to really try to clean up the graffiti and and bring, and I think that would do psychologically so much uplifting to people living here. Yeah, I agree. And it was a great day uh, downtown on May 21st and throughout our city. I was down and there were about 1,600 people throughout downtown doing planting and cleaning uh, and, uh, you know, painting murals and all sorts of things. And We've made a lot of good, great progress in downtown. We employ about 80 or so individuals full-time that are here seven days a week, and they're funded by property owners downtown. And so downtown actually looks and feels great. Where we haven't seen as much progress is on the, the freeway, and specifically I-5 through downtown Seattle, which just drives me nuts, and it's just a mess. And most of the walls are full of graffiti, and there's too much garbage along the shoulders and in the medians, and we, we really need more action an investment by the state and the State Department of Transportation to have a regular maintenance and cleaning crew out there all the time. And so we need to stay on top of this and, and really send the signal that, you know, you're not going to continue to come and make a mess of public infrastructure. Those who live and work and have pride in our city and certainly those that are visiting here are looking to invest. Um, I don't think it, it engenders a lot of confidence in our ability to, you know, take on big issues and run a great city if we can't you know get the basics right couldn't have said that better anything else before we go john i would just say you know downtowns across our country and across the world are you know facing stiff headwinds as they come out of this pandemic and and there's not an area a type of geography that's been more deeply impacted than than downtowns because our job's about bringing people together for all sorts of reasons so we're competing with lots of other places that are you know facing similar uh, challenges, and I think we've got to get up every morning with that, you know, in mind. And there's a lot at stake here. Every great city has a great downtown. That's John Scholes, president and CEO of the Downtown Seattle Association. If you would like more information about the number of programs that the Downtown Seattle Association is involved with, and there are many, just Google Downtown Seattle Association. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Now Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with Eric Klima. 
We are here talking about a lot of issues today, and we have a real crowded program and hopefully a very informative program while being entertaining. How about that? Uh, One of the features we started not too long ago, and uh, we've gotten some good feedback on it, but it's called Voices of History. And uh, just talking about little vignettes about time at another long ago. And Mm -hmm. actually today starts in 1922, and it goes to to actually today, 2022. So let's get with the uh, first one. And that started on June 13th, 1966. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down its decision on Miranda versus Arizona, establishing the principle that all criminal suspects must be advised of their rights before interrogation. We've all heard, as a result of that, you have the right you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. It's amazing. It seems like that would have been done so much earlier than 66. I agree. And I've you, got and that you, reaction. And you hear that, Miranda rights. Yeah, right. it's Miranda rights. I, I just know that from... Uh, Oh, what was that old cop show, Black and White, back in the... Dragnet? uh, Yeah, Dragnet, yep. Okay. No, 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 it wasn't. They don't read your rights on Dragnet, I don't think, at least the early ones. I'm thinking of uh, Adam 12. Adam 12, okay. One Adam 12. (laughs) One Adam 12. It's amazing you should say that. I probably haven't looked at that show in 20, 40 years. You got to wonder if it holds up. Right, and it was on last night, and I watched about 15 (laughs) minutes of it, Adam 12. (laughs) should have remembered that. It was corny, but that's okay. Um, On June 13th, 1967, President Lyndon Johnson appointed U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court. Justice Marshall was the first African-American in history to be appointed to the Supreme Court. Amazing. On June 14th, 1922, President Warren G. Harding becomes the first president to have his voice transmitted by radio. Oh, okay. Very close to our hearts, sure. of course. At the time, many people considered this as a revolutionary shift in how presidents address the American public. Using that new technology of radio. Right. And, of course, TV mm-hmm. came in in the 19, what, in the political campaigns, really in the 50s. They sure. The debate of 1960 elected JFK. It was really the first... Wasn't that uh, a turning point, too, when they saw him juxtaposed with Nixon and Nixon looked very nervous, I remember, something that's like correct. that? Yeah, that's okay. correct. That's made so much exaggeration over the years, I think. But, no, you are essentially correct. That's mm-hmm. what they said. Oh, that cost Nixon the election. I don't know if that's true or not. But the other thing is that June 14th, 1922, that was 100 years ago yesterday. Wow. Just uh, discovered that just before we went on the air. On June 16, 1884... The first roller coaster in America opens up on Coney Island. At the turn of the century, though, hundreds of roller coasters were in place throughout the country. That'll scare you being one of the first people on the first roller coaster. Oh, yeah. Let's give this a shot. <laughs> hey, what could let's, go wrong? let's pull your name out of a hat. Oh, you win. Get on the roller coaster. <laughs> no, I don't want to. <laughs> win. Uh, let's see. This is interesting. At least I think it is. We'll see if you think it is. On June 17, 1885, the dismantled Statue of Liberty, a gift of friendship from the people of France to the people of America, as we know, arrives in New York Harbor after being shipped across Mm. the Atlantic Ocean 
in 350 individual pieces packed in more than 200 cases. I didn't know that. You know who made it was Ikea. You had to follow the instructions and put it all together. I didn't know that, Eric. <laughs> this guy is just uh, information I wonder, come from everywhere. I, I wonder, though, if you just stop people on the street and ask, first of all, where, where did the Statue of Liberty come from? How many would say France? But then that also, a Jay Leno moment? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then also to have it built here, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Right. I, I remember seeing it in pieces, but I had mm. no idea it was that many pieces. It would be like it comes to America going, forget it. Take it back. You bring it here as a whole, just like. No returns. That's right. Um, On June 17, 1972, five men are arrested for breaking in to the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Hotel. This incident ultimately cost President Richard Nixon his presidency. Dun, dun. On June 17, 1994, I think we all remember this. Well, of course, if you weren't born, then you don't. But the afternoon of June 17, 1994, O.J. Simpson and Al Cowens lead the L.A. police on a slow, low-speed chase on the L.A. freeways. I think it was the 405. Mm-hmm. But that was uh, June 17, 1994. And on June 18, 1942, so that is three days from now, right? Um, that will be Paul McCartney's 80th birthday. Wow. And uh, I did get to see Paul McCartney when he just came here to Climate Pledge Arena in early May. Fabulous. That's all I can say. He did 36 songs. Two and a half hours. That's amazing. Did not stop or take a breath, literally. It was an amazing concert. Crazy stamina. So uh, coming up next, let's get into this uh, Metaverse with Eric Kramer. This is going to be very interesting. And welcome back to this edition of Voices of Experience here on Kixie 880 and KKNW AM 1150. Paul, uh, we decided to do something a little bit different here instead of the standard spotlight on success uh, interview. You and I are going to have just a little bit of a chat on something that's interested me of late, and that's the term metaverse, uh, the word metaverse. You're starting to hear it more and more, you know, with, with, with Facebook changing to meta and, and so on. Um, but it's it's going to be one of these things, I think, that's going to become a day-to-day type thing for us, much like the Internet. But as you peel back the onion layers and read more and more about this, it starts to boggle your mind as to how far is this going to go. Uh, and I think, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you kind of can look back to the dawn of uh, the Internet. I kind of can because I, I was in, in this business at the time. And it was just so strange to suddenly be at your computer and go to websites, you know, and then move around. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, uh, and now it's on your phone. You know, you know it, using a desktop computer is so, somewhat rare nowadays. So a lot of it is, you know, going down to your phone. Sure. So this is a bit of an extension. And I think that's why you see some of these large companies like Google, like Facebook, already investing in it very heavily um, I was reading one article that said by 2026, 25% of people will spend at least one hour a day um, in the metaverse for work, shopping, education, social media, and or entertainment. Uh, and that's only going to grow. So, But what is the metaverse, essentially? And when I looked at that, 
it's it's one of these things that there's so many different definitions. But essentially, <clears throat> think of it as a 3D social network. So, so instead of going on Facebook and sharing photos, maybe some videos and things like this, you're putting on goggles, you're having a, a, a sensory situation with your eyes and your ears as you go through a fictitious but 3D network. So it would be an avatar, a caricature of yourself. We could be sitting here doing this radio show, and I'd be looking across. Even though you're sitting at home, it would seem very much in 3D like we're in this room. And we can converse, and you can reach out and do you know manipulate things. Of course, that's all happening virtually, but you as a person in your brain is thinking these things are actually happening. You see it a lot with gaming right now, where people can game with other people anywhere in the world and be inside the game itself. But let's take that a step further. What if you wanted to go see your physician and you couldn't get, you know, you couldn't get out of your house or for whatever reason you had mobility issues, whatever. You could really, through the, through the metaverse, you could be in that office and conversing with them. And there's going to be some technologies that have to happen to keep taking it down the road even deeper. But I think about it, I think about the implications early on for not just gaming, but for work. So if you, for instance, wanted to work here at Hubbard Radio and we had a COVID situation or you're, you're in Phoenix or whatever, your avatar essentially could sit down with my avatar in our offices. I could give you a whole virtual tour of here. And we can sit down and it can mimic your facial expressions so that it almost feels, feels to me like we're in person. And it just starts to blow your mind. Okay, well, what, where else could we go? Let's say as the radio station, we have a concert. So using Bitcoin or some other virtual money source, some, some source that is not true money in, in a sense that we know it in our wallet or even in our debit card, you could go pay for a concert and be in that concert in a seat and looking across at other people who have chosen their own sort of avatar image <laughs> that, that is in the seats next to you. It'd be really interesting. I find it kind of funny to think, okay, what would be my avatar? What would I look like if I could be anything I wanted to be, right? I mean, what would you think? I mean, would you, would you make it yourself, or would it be just something different, different age? Different? I'd have to think about that because um, I'm— you know, this is some, you're explaining this very well, by the way. Oh, thanks. I read information about this that you sent me, and I got the gist of it, but there were still a lot of questions I had about this. But you've kind of smoothed that out a little bit for me and figuring out what this thing is all about. Uh, one thing that I wanted to uh, look at so, no, I don't have an idea in mind who else I want to be, mm-hmm. um, uh, but I looked at what I, you sent me, and I could see a lot of the people were. And they were virtual. And, and one of the things that I find different about this is that this is not augmented uh, reality. Mm-hmm. So it's all virtual. Sure. Okay. So I don't know where I'm going with that, but I try to think of what's the value of this. And that's what you've explained to me better because I was questioning, is this just going to be just another uh, area for gamers to go play? Yeah. What What are the real... There's, um, there's lots of applications that can yeah. happen, uh, particularly with business and purchasing and things like this. Because if your avatar is you, for instance, and it is your exact size and things, you could literally go into a virtual mall 
and be walking around with other people from around the world who decided to go to that virtual mall at the same time and and be shopping in stores, putting on clothing, and then having it shipped to your house that you actually really wear it. Mm. It starts to blow your mind. But you make a really good point that, you know, I think in large part smartphones have hurt us in a way because it's led to less communication, certainly less face-to-face communication. Right, you on a city bus, on an airplane, uh, even with coworkers, or or sometimes even at the family dinner table, people are looking down on their phone, right, and and you know, surfing or, or or sending a text or something like that. And so, I'm wondering if this is only going to take us yet a step further. Uh, and what really gets strange is when you start to think about the legal uh, applications of this. They're even talking about creating an, a situation where your avatar will have a five-foot, in a sense, virtual space around it so that no one can come in and touch you or do things to you in a virtual world that you wouldn't want to have done. And so then legally, what does that mean if somehow they broach that or they're able to do something to your virtual avatar? Mm. I mean, the li- legal, re- it just starts to make your mind spin a little bit, sure. right? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, so much so that... There's only so much power out there, computing power, so that can be sold as real estate. So now it's suddenly this virtual thing has value. So people are purchasing real estate in a sense, companies and individuals, in the virtual world. That then could be built a virtual brick-and-mortar store, for instance, or a place for people to live. So in a sense, you're living two lives. You're living your physical life, but then you'll have this other non-physical, virtual life. You want to talk about getting disconnected. And and t- to me, I mean, it just sort of blows my mind. But you know what else blew my mind was just the fact that we would have voice activation to our dashboard in our car and be able to say, you know, how do I get to this address? Da, 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 and it starts talking to you. Take a left here, go five miles there. You know, So these are not big leaps. Yeah, no, not at all. And that's a good point. If you go back to, let's say, 2003, that's before the iPhone. Mm-hmm. That's almost like ancient history now. And if you s- started to describe the iPhone of what it could do 20 years later, we'd be having the same conversation and going, it would blow our mind. Really? Yes. No, yes. You, you're going to have this in your pocket. You're going to be able to do this and that and order tickets online, and you're not going to have to have paper tickets anymore and restaurants and do that that we take for granted now. Yes. And we don't even give it two thoughts. But now we have something here. And, and we're looking at it kind of the same thing. Are we more afraid of it and, or how right. do we treat this? One of the things that I looked at and paused for a moment and what is useful and the reason I brought augmented reality up is because I had an interview with someone, Adam Shepard. He was a local uh, public relations man and he was working with IKEA. And he was talking about something for, I think I had this interview four or five years ago. And he was talking about augmented reality. I'm going, what is that? You know, he said to me, well, Ikea, I'm working with them as a client. And you'll be able to go eventually on your iPhone or on your computer. You'll take a picture of your living room and you'll go to the Ikea website. Mm. You'll be able to drop a couch in there into your living room and it will fit right there. So you don't have to drive down. You can see the color, the size, how it fits into your room. And I was going, really? You're kidding. But the thing is, I went on it yesterday. It's up and going. Right. And it works really well. Right. It would be interesting that if 
you know, sometimes problems get solved in a completely surprising way. Just take uh, pollution from vehicles and things like that and, and traffic. What if that problem is somehow eventually solved by the fact that we just don't get in our car and go to work? Or we just don't get in our car and go to worship? You can all do this in the metaverse. We don't even get in our car. And if we're in the military, let's say we need to do training. We don't go down to Fort Lewis and stand in the trees and get behind guns and things like that. We do it all in the metaverse. Saves tons of money. It could completely be changed at a moment's notice. The, you know, the battlefield in a sense. So it's, it's really, this is going to have implications across everything. But as you said earlier, who knows exactly where it's going to go. And I just want to leave it with one, other, one last thing. And I, I kind of feel like I could talk a lot about this. But um, I think, uh, let me see if I have it here. Oh, look at all my papers. Ah, here we go. The long-term metaverse. This is, this is really out there stuff. Brain-computer interfaces. The final platform. Doesn't that sound like a sci-fi movie? Perhaps the most far-reaching uh, vision for the metaverse involves brain-computer interfaces, or BCIs. So keep your, you might start hearing BCIs more. Um, basically, this technology, such as Neuralink, requires neurosurgery to implant devices in the brain, an idea that simulta- simultaneously intrigues and discourages many potential consumers. Yeah, like me. I don't know if I want something put on my brain, right? But once that happens, get rid of, there's no more goggles. There's no more. And think about how it can manipulate then the senses within your brain because it's just your brain saying you smell this, you hear this, you see this. Wow. So you might be believing this alter reality as much as your real reality. That's kind of scary. Yes, it is. Now, this is what we're talking about here. And, you know, we are looking at uh, subjects that we cover, and this is one that uh, we'd like to get some feedback on. Yeah. When we're talking about the type of show that we do and Voices of Experience. Is this something you want to hear more of? I think it's fascinating and scary at the same time, but, hey, we're human beings and we're alive, and we have to be yeah. warned or talk about these things. So if you would do that and call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166, give us your thoughts about what we're having on the show today and what we have on the next couple of weeks and call, that would be wonderful. That would be uh, 425-653-1166. And again, we'll have a drawing for Tacoma Rainier's baseball game coming up on June 29th. Leave your contact information, either your phone number or your email address. Eric, that was fascinating. Thank you. So we'll be back uh, in just a few moments, and uh, we're going to be talking to Lauren Simons. And again, she's going to be talking about another very interesting point of view. There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure welcome to this edition to voices of experience my name is paul Casey. voices of experience is simulcast on am 880 kixi and 1150 am kknw on wednesdays at 3 p.m voices of experience is also rebroadcast on kixie sunday mornings at 11 a.m visit voicesofexperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz the higher you score on the quiz the higher your prospects for success that's voicesofexperience.com 
Lauren Simons, CEO of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Washington, is our guest. I read a column she wrote in the Seattle Times a couple weeks ago in the wake of the murders of school children and teachers in Evalde, Texas. The title of the column, Attributing Mass Shootings to Mental Illness, is not just incorrect, it exasperates the stigma. I found her article very compelling and educational. You wrote an article in the Seattle Times over a week ago, which really piqued my interest in what you were talking about, because I've heard mental health and the association with guns hadn't given it a lot of thought. And that's why I thought your article was so important. And I'm just going to read the first paragraph. In the past few days alone, more than 100 people have been killed by a gun in nearly 300 incidents in the United States. Fortunately, and this is me talking, there have been a few more since you wrote this article, which is rather incredible, or not. I'm picking up now what you had to say. These events have brought a renewed focus on mental illness and attempts to link mental illness to violence. As the CEO of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Washington, I beg you to stop. Violence is not a product of mental illness. Violence is a product of untreated anger. Well said. Give us the facts. 98% of domestic gun violence does not include mental illness. The contribution of mental illness to overall violence in the United States is somewhere around 4%. And the contribution of mental illness to overall gun violence in the U.S. is even smaller than that. It's 2%. And people will often say to me, isn't untreated anger a mental illness? No. Anger is an emotion and a feeling and, honestly, a natural state of being that we all experience. But when people are not given the skills and the opportunities to talk about their anger and learn about appropriate ways to address anger as opposed to violence, that is untreated anger, and that is not a mental illness. And I also want to say some of our mass shootings, the one in Buffalo, was racially motivated. So I also want to say, as I said in my article, um, hatred and racism is not a mental illness. It's a public health problem, but it's not a mental illness. I think a lot of this comes from, and as I said, you educated me quite a bit in just that one article, but um, it's just a, it's, it's sinister in the way that a lot of people want to wrap it around into something than what it really is. And that, as you said, is, you, know, you mentioned it's, you know, males who do this primarily, and uh, maybe what you didn't say, but what I think is that this is something that's unique to the United States. I mean, this doesn't happen in North Korea. This doesn't happen in China or Russia or Canada, or it used to happen or somewhat in Australia and maybe New Zealand, not the extent here, but they tightened up the gun laws and it really made a difference. So sometimes I think there's a lot of people, and I'll just say who they are, the gun lobby throws in mental illness just because it's very easy for people to grasp, like they'll continue to say, people kill, not guns. So it's not the guns that are the problem, it's the people. And then uh, the other thing, obviously, is what they say a lot is, well, if you take away the assault weapons, then they're going to come after our hunting rifles. I have not heard one person in my life say that who are, let's say, they want background checks or they want to ban assault weapons like I do. I don't care if people hunt or not. I don't do it. But this is not what this is about. But it's like this. I think I want to get your reaction to that. 
about, again, it's mental health. So it just is kind of thrown out there and this is the whole problem. It's not the guns. Is, is that part of this? You're right. This type of mass gun violence does not occur in other countries at all. Other countries experience the same percentage of mental illness in their populations, and we don't see mass gun violence or even significant gun violence in those countries. And those countries have passed restrictive gun ownership laws. So in 96, you referred to this, there was a massacre at a primary school in Scotland, which killed 16 students. That's 1996 and one teacher. And the UK enacted a number of common sense gun-related policies following that shooting. And they worked. There has not been a school shooting in the UK since then. And in stark contrast, America has more guns and more guns per capita than any other nation. The U.S. has more than 390 million guns in circulation. This was in 2018. That is 120 civilian firearms for every 100 person. That's one thing, you're right. This does not happen in other countries. This is very particular to the United States. I also wanna address the gun lobby and politicians and other people saying it's mental illness. I think that it's really hard, honestly, quite impossible to comprehend that somebody would commit an act of mass gun violence, terrorism, without thinking, this person must have a mental illness. Why else would you walk into a school and try to kill children or kill children? Because they didn't just try, they did. Or walk into a grocery store. So it's hard to understand that it's not mental illness. It's anger, that it's coming from a place of untreated anger. And risks of community violence increase what we often see in in most people who commit this type of gun violence is usually there's a past history of substance use dependence or a past history of violence or growing up with violence as part of your life and honestly being young and male is a risk factor if there isn't a way to understand how to channel and deal with anger you know what I think, too, is I'm older now. I didn't have children, so I wasn't around it enough. But I, I have been around enough younger people. And one of the things that I saw growing up are these video games that really were you know, quite primitive in the beginning, but now how sophisticated they are. And I wonder when you're a male, pretty much, and you're right on target there. I mean, these incidents happen between like 18 and 25-year-old males, probably 80, 90% of them. That's the age group. But I wonder if how big videos, because they're so realistic now, I, I just wonder about these guys sitting on videos eight hours a day or whatever it is, and they don't distinguish anymore between, let's say, the video game and what they're doing in a mass violence. I can't comprehend that that is possible, but I just throw that out. I do believe as a social worker that there is an impact of the constant playing or even watching television and media, you know, the way that guns are portrayed in movies and on television and in video games is normal and commonplace. And that's certainly what the gun lobby 
wants this country to be comfortable with are guns being normal and commonplace. So I think that it does have an overall impact, and it's very important that parents and other responsible adults are able to provide that information for children. Well, I just read an article the other day that, you know, a policeman wrote, and he said, essentially, we have assault weapons. There were the police. But he said, at the end of the day, we have to lock our assault weapons in at the police station and go home. We don't take these things home. I mean, we're well-trained, and we don't do this. So why in the heck should an 18-year-old be able to walk into a store, buy an assault weapon, walk out and bring it home, and buy all this ammunition and several assault weapons or dozens, which you see a lot of these people have? On the federal level, I I don't know if anything can get past the Senate, even if it is universal background checks and raising the age to purchase a gun to 21. I think those are the two most potential pieces of legislation that the Senate might consider and pass. And even that is going to be difficult. I think that it will be, again, left up to states to decide how far they want to go in common sense gun laws. I really think people need to hold their elected officials' feet to the fire. If the majority of the country believes in common sense gun laws, why do we have elected officials walking around saying, no, we can't do that. Everybody has a right to own an automatic weapon. When you mentioned that the majority of the country is for gun control, but they've been that way for the last 40, 50 years. There's nothing new under right. the sun there. They've always supported right. gun so, control. It's a small minority of people, which I can't understand the power they have. There's only 4 million members of the NRA. Um, I know it come, and they're just a front group for the gun manufacturers, but I can't understand still how this continues to occur. I think there, there should be an, a National Emergency Act passed and those, these guns should be seized. And that's all there is to it. And uh, we're at a point now. I don't know if this is if this is not a national emergency. I don't know what qualifies that. And there is a law to do this. It was passed in 1976. I'm not going to get off my own tangent here. But that's where I think <laughs> we're at. I am tired of this continuing. All the people are for this. And it's not happening. We need to declare a war on this just as we are attacked from the Japanese in World War II or Osama bin Laden in 2001. These are domestic terrorists, and they need to be held accountable, and now. Definitely is domestic terrorism. I agree with you 100%. Tell me what the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Washington is. What do you do, and, and who do you serve? NAMI Washington is part of the nation's largest grassroots mental health advocacy organization. We are peer-led, which means that we're led by people living with behavioral health illnesses and conditions and their family members and caregivers. In Washington state, we have 20 local affiliates across the state. The core work that our local organizations do is they provide free mental health classes, support groups for family members and peers. That would be people living with mental health conditions. We do community presentation programs, educational presentation programs. One of our largest and fastest growing programs are youth mental health outreach programs. There are three presentations that are peer-led in that program. 
one for middle and high school students, one for staff, one for families and caregivers. And if I wanted to connect with you, how would I do that? You would go to www.namiwa, that's N-A-M-I-W-A dot org. Excellent. Anything else before we go? I really want to thank you for this opportunity to talk about this incredibly important issue to help try to fight the stigma of conflating gun violence with mental health conditions. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I think you. you've done that. My thanks to Lauren Simons, CEO of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Washington, and for enlightening me and I hope many of you, assuming that mass shootings are simply a problem of mental health. If you would like to get in touch with the organization, you can call 1-800-950-6264, or you can visit their website, which is namiwa.org. That's N-A-M-I-W-A dot org. N-A-M-I-W-A dot org. Well, we are out of time for this edition of Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and thank you, Eric, for enlightening us today about the meta, I'll call it universe, but <laughs> metaverse for that. But thanks, Eric, for no that. No problem. Great and show. Eric, thank you, er- Eric Burris over here, who stitches this whole thing together. Uh, again, thank you so much for being here today. Quote of the week, the United States House Select Committee on the January 6th attack. Quote, tonight. I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Congresswoman Liz Cheney. This week's One Hit Wonder coming up next. This week's One Hit Wonder is a song that was originally composed in 1954 by Arthur Guitar Boogie Smith. The composition was originally aired on an episode of The Andy Griffith Show in 1963. The song rose to number two in the Billboard Top 100 in 1973, and it held that position for four consecutive weeks. This would not have been possible had the song not been featured in a dark but unforgettable movie starring Burt Reynolds and John Boyd. As a sidebar, the song was used in the movie without Arthur Smith's permission, and Smith won the lawsuit. From the 1972 movie, Deliverance, Dueling Banjos.